Okay, it's 10, so time to start again. Welcome back to PRIO again. My name is Giacomo Bruni. I work here as a doctoral researcher, uh, focusing on normative approaches to the regulation of technology, including artificial intelligence. Before we start with the panel, a few practical announcements. I should remember you that this is being recorded, and the audio will be available on the event page, as well as uh, PRIO Spotify channels. Uh, secondly, you will find some policy briefs that the four of us have been writing recently uh, in the back of the room close to the food. I see some of you have been already, already reading them, so please feel free to pick up some copies after the event. And um, today we are here discussing uh, competing perspectives on global AI governance. This panel really builds on the previous discussion we just had. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, three PRIO colleagues. All three of them are senior researchers. I've tried to come up with some summary of what they do. It, it has been quite complicated because they work on a thousand things, but I'll try anyway. So joining me from left to right, uh, Bruno Oliveira Martins. His main research interests lie on the intersection between technolo technological development, security practices, and societal change. His part and leads various projects examining, for example, the integration of drones in the civilian airspace, the societal impact of European Union security research, as well as Europe's security architecture post-Ukraine war. Ilaria Carrozza also works here as a senior researcher at PRIO. Uh, she has been researching on issues connected to China's foreign policy, foreign and security policy. Uh, within that scope, she has been part and leads, of, and leads uh, various projects on the technological competition uh, between great powers, focusing on how China instrumentally adopts disruptive technologies, including <laughs> artificial intelligence, to challenge, to challenge the existing world order. And last but not least, Nicolas Marsh, also senior researcher here at PRIO. His main research interests regard global trade in small arms and light weapons, the European Union security and foreign policy, and multilateral diplomacy concerning arms control. Nick also works on several uh, projects and capacity, especially or also relating to the military and security application of technologies, including artificial intelligence. Now, what we're here really talking about is the fact that, as we were saying in the previous panel, there is an increasing urgency for the need to regulate artificial intelligence. And that comes from both regulators, uh, uh, policymakers, academics, and also uh, tech communities. But we're not quite there yet. So what we're here discussing, among other things, is how China and the European Union are approaching the regulation of digital technologies, and also the, the needs, the risks, and the, challenging, the challenges connected to uh, the regulation of military and security applications of artificial intelligence. Uh, this is meant to be a discussion between the four of us for about one hour, and then we will open up the floor for questions, so please uh, keep that for the last half an hour. It will be my job to make sure that there's going to be enough space for that. I'd like to start uh, by asking a question to Nick. Uh, Nick, we just talked about uh, the need to regulate the production, trade, and use of military and security applications of artificial intelligence. And... This is a very complicated question, I know, but I li I'd like to ask, uh, to ask you to unpack why do we need to regulate artificial intelligence? Why there is an urgency growing on that regard? Yeah, uh, thanks very much, Bruno. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about sort of military um, security aspects of, 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 of AI, so I'm not going to sort of talk about all the civilian um, technology, technology that's around. Um, I mean, I don't know if uh, all of you were at the last session, but uh, one of the panelists um, made the very accurate point that we already have a very large body of international law, um, international human rights law, international humanitarian law covering um, 
conduct and warfare. Um, and it, it, we, we don't need to add to that uh, in terms of adding new uh, aspects of uh, uh, humanitarian law um, because the conduct of, say, police forces or of military forces is already covered. Um, but uh, as uh, uh, other panelists in the last session mentioned, okay, but states aren't really following this. Um, uh, and that is where we get into why we need uh, additional controls over specific technologies. Um, because we, we can't assume that all governments are going to actually follow the international law that they should follow. Um, uh, and, you know... We, we could list um, states that are intentionally violating the laws of war, human rights, um, but we'd spend all morning mentioning those. I mean, the, the, the list is very long, um, and the, the level of violations is very long. Um, so then we see uh, with certain uh, technologies, we have additional um, treaties uh, which cover uh, not only the use, but also the stockpiling, production, trade um, in that technologies. We can look at biological weapons, chemical weapons, um, nuclear weapons, um, uh, sort of one end of the scale, all the way down to landmines um, at the other end of the scale in terms of um, uh, prohibitions, are not just on what you do with them, but whether you're allowed to make them, uh, trade them. Uh, and these additional prohibitions, you can see it as a preventative mechanism. Um, it's very unlikely uh, that a state will be able to, for example, use chemical weapons if it hasn't produced them, if it can't import them, where does it get them from? Um, if it can't even import the, the technology to make them, for example, um, it becomes far more difficult. The same applies to nuclear weapons, biological weapons, etc. Uh, we can certainly point towards these prohibitions on, on specific weapons as having had, in some cases, ma you know, major effects on how wars are fought. Um, uh, if we go back to, for example, the 1980s, 1990s, uh, there were horrendous casualties due to landmines, um, civilian ca casualties largely, uh, you know, 25, 30% of casualties typically in wars you know, were civilians stepping on landmines. Um, that's, for the most part, been reduced to, to very low numbers because of the prohibition not, uh, on the stockpiling production trade in, in landmines. Um, so, and in addition to that, we, we can see uh, a process um, of developing these specific treaties has a tendency to stigmatize certain weapons. They become um, beyond what uh, responsible states should use. Uh, we've seen that debate, um, uh, you know, recently with Ukraine receiving cluster munitions from, from the United States. And again, you know, criticisms of Ukraine that, okay, this is uh, not... Um, a responsible use of military force to use cluster munitions because uh, the weapons, uh, the, the submunitions can stay uh, present for, for a very long time, can injure civilians um, after, the, after the conflict. So there, there's uh, the, the sort of preventative act aspect and the stigmatization aspect is why uh, there are particularly c controls are prohibitions on certain weapons and we see um, a large... Uh, 
uh, international effort to have a similar treaty around uh, military and security aspects of artificial intelligence uh, <coughs> and discussions going on in the UN and, and other forums. Great, thanks. We know, we know that part of the challenge of international regulation of digital technologies is the fact that different states and group of states are coming up with different regulatory approaches, which are leading towards di sometimes divergent normative understandings of how to use certain digital technologies, including artificial intelligence. Ilaria, could you please uh, tell, something, tell, tell us something about how is China approaching uh, artificial intelligence? Um, and this was really the first uh, kind of national policy that really focused on artificial intelligence. And it, was, it, it, it laid out a plan throughout the next um, uh, uh, 15, 20 so years. It had three aims. The first, which is uh, which was 2020, uh, which was basically to focus on developing big data, uh, autonomous intelligence systems, uh, um, swarm intelligence, uh, and, and developing also foundational theories uh, of AI within the research environment. And I think based on my personal assessment, that goal was achieved. Uh, the second uh, um, um, objective of the strategy looks at 2025, so in just about a couple of years, where they look at or they see or envision AI as applied through society, across medicine, across infrastructure, manufacturing, agriculture, etc. I would say also speculating that they're on a good path to reaching that. And then finally, the third goal, the third aim is to establish China as the world leader in the field of AI by 2030. Um, and then, and, the, and there you see the goals. If you read through the document, is more about really AI seeping through social governance, um, national defense, industrial value chains, really permeating every aspect of society. Um, <clears throat> and, and that's one policy. You've got all kinds of other supporting documents. The China Standards 2035. Uh, which also looks at chi establishing China uh, uh, as a, as a, a standard-setting uh, entity. Um, the 14th five-year plans, the governance principles on, on new generation AI, the ethical norms, I could go on. Uh, there's lots of, of, of supporting uh, um, uh, official documents uh, kind of really boosting this, this strategy. The second element I wanted to touch on is the military-civil fusion, because I think that, it, and, I, and, and this is also a supporting policy, if you will, but it somewhat stands apart from all the others. And it's, it has really emerged as a key driver of not only development of AI within China, but also technological and economic competition with the U.S., and it's part of the parties, Communist Party's plan to develop the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, into a world-class military uh, by 2049, which is the hundredth anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. So there's obviously lots of symbolism in that. And under this policy, basically private companies uh, that develop new technologies uh, are incentivized, uh, let's say, to share them with the Chinese government if asked, uh, so that they could incorporate them into military programs and vice versa, of course. Um, uh, and while it is important to say that, of course, such a fusion uh, remains uh, aspirational, there, there are no really the specific laws uh, um, uh, uh, for this, but there are a number of other provisions, such as the national intelligence law, the cybersecurity law, the national security law, all of which have been either introduced or updated pretty recently, that really attempt to remove barriers between private companies and their user data um, uh, and the Chinese authorities. Um, and so, so, so this is really to say that, that there is no such thing as purely civilian technology within, within China. 
And then, and thirdly, as a consequence of all of these uh, uh, efforts, um, China has uh, been in the midst of rolling out what I think is the world's earliest and most detailed regulations governing AI. Um, these include measures governing recommendation algorithms, uh, uh, synthetically generated content, particularly images, and, um, and chatbots such as, or uh, uh, large language models such as ChatGPT and, and the equivalent Chinese apps. And so I would say that, um, that China is emerging uh, as, uh, as really a strong regulatory power. Uh, and I think that its effort will reshape how the technology is built and deployed within China, but also internationally, and this will impact um, all of us and, and definitely global governance attempts. Thank you very much for the fantastic overview. We will circulate back to China shortly. But uh, starting from your last point on the regulatory power of, uh, of Chinese foreign policy, if you want, we learned in the previous panel that the European Union is attempting to, attempting to position itself as a super regulator, as it has done in the past with certain pieces of regulation, arguably like the GDPR. So Bruno, I'd like to ask if you, if you could uh, expand on this. What's the European Union approach to artificial intelligence generally? Yes, thanks a lot. Uh, I think it was very important that I, sp that I speak after you mm -hmm. because I think this presentation really highlighted how um, the, the issue of the regulation of AI, it's, more, it's much, so much more than just regulating an emerging technology. It's really becoming a key pillar for, for geostrategy and geopolitics. And I think that obviously the case, the case of, of the emergence of, of China as a key actor, um, it really opens up a lot of discussions. And it, it does permeate the way that, that the EU deals with this issue as well. Uh, so no matter how much we, we, we read into the draft uh, EU AI Act uh, and, we, and we say, you know, this is really not for, for, for military application of AI, the, and I would like to to make this point is that the, the geopolitical dimension is, is crucial. Um, it's also important as, as a matter of clarification that the EU AI Act is not in force yet. It's still in the very final stages of, of uh, discussions. We, we will get into, into those details, but I, it's also important to, to, to have that uh, on the table. The EU AI Act is not in force, okay? Mm. Um, yes, the, the EU is traditionally seen as a... As a a regulatory um, power. Uh, the EU has, you know, for a number of, a number of reasons that, that I can try to, to lay out, has emerged over the years. And this is not something that deals just with, with the digital economy, let's put it like that. It's something that is way beyond that. The EU emerged as a standard setter for, you know, relevant things and, you know, arguably very irrelevant things. But for a number of, of reasons, uh, the way that the EU regulates a vast amount of issues becomes the international standard. And this has led, you know, some authors, namely uh, Anu Bradford, calls this the, the Brussels effect, okay? And this is, it's a, a very persuasive narrative and, and it, it captures well uh, the way that the EU... Uh, in a way, exhales power through its uh, uh, regulatory uh, behavior, um, and uh, she, in kind of in, in her previous work, she 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 talks about a, a a unilateral regulatory globalization. You know that happens through the EU, and this happens because the EU is is a very large uh, consumer market, uh, around uh, 500 million people. 
It has, over the years, over the decades, uh, exhibited very high regulatory capacity, and this is something you know that is done not only you know by the bureaucrats working at different uh, parts of the European uh, Commission, but also it's something that is very competently enforced by uh, by by the courts. Okay. Um, the EU has exhibited a preference for for strict standards, and it has been, uh, you know, mostly regulating what can be called immobile uh, immobile targets. So, kind of, it has been regulating commodities rather than, you know, capital, for example, uh, and and it's based on the logic of non-divisibility of production. So the idea is that when the EU sets a particular standard and says, you know, in order for you guys out there to sell your products within this market, you need to abide to this standard. And then, of course, from the perspective of, you know, economies of scale, etc., it is natural that the, when the new product is developed, even if it's developed outside the EU, it's much more logical that it already say, it follows the standards set by the EU in order to to you know to be able to enter this market um, so in traditionally um, some people talk about different models of governing um, uh, emerging technologies so kind of the, the Chinese one as Ilaria said has some very uh, specific characteristics, civil-military fusion, a very dominant role of the state, okay? So even when the technology emerges from, from you know, from the, the, the civilian realm, the state is always there, uh, you know, able to reach, to reach out and to steer things. In a sense, on the opposite end of, of this, you know, uh, private public spectrum, we have the US model that is characterized to be mostly market driven. So, kind of a lot of room is left uh, for the markets to operate, for innovation to happen, uh, and kind of, and typically the, govern, the government stays a little bit detached from, from these processes. Uh, the, the approach of the EU is, 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 is very different from this one. Uh, normally, this, uh, the EU approach is characterized as being a rights-based approach. So contrary to the Chinese states-based approach or the American market-based approach, uh, the EU would be a rights-based approach. And again, this in the framework provided by the most recent work of uh, Anu Bradford. Um, and the rights-based approach means that most of the regulation focus on whether or not emerging technology fulfills the rights of individual people. Okay, so this is this is mostly focused on 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 rights, on on the on the observance of the law, uh, and of course this also has an internal market uh, dimension. Um, the final thing that I would like to say in this first uh, address is the. Uh, is the strategic dimension. So over the years, the, um, the ones of you that follow the way that the EU tries to position itself when it comes to geopolitical developments, a key driver and the key concept has been strategic autonomy. So the awareness you know, from a Brussels perspective that the EU or in Europe more generally needs to be able 
to be strategically autonomous, to make strategic decisions on issues of war and peace, security, defense, etc., autonomously without having to be completely reliant on, on uh, external partners, namely the, the United States. And the way that the EU looks at emerging technologies, including AI, is very much through this logic of, of uh, strategic autonomy. Okay, So uh, uh, the regulation of AI as a means for the EU to acquire increase, increasing levels of uh, strategic autonomy. Yeah, I think I'll start here. stop okay. here. Thank you very much. Uh, you touched upon uh, the so-called China state uh, approach, and I'd like to circulate back to Ilaria. Uh, you talked about the, the different policy that are emerging from China. I'd like to ask you if you could go a bit more into detail about also the, both the policies, but also how those policies are reflecting when it comes to implementation. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, from what Bruno just, just, just laid out in terms of, of, of EU and, and you hinted at the US as well. Um, so again, picking up from where I left it earlier, um, uh, because of China's strong desire to shape the establishment of global AI norms, standards and regulations, they have really, I think, created the, first, the world's first um, regulatory structure for AI. They have the super regulator um, and, and, and you know, they've been among the first or the, in some occasions the first country to really roll out all these policies. They have, um, as I mentioned briefly, the... Uh, a regulation on recommendation algorithms that's uh, uh, already in force since 2021. Then last year, they published rules regulating deep synthesis, so, so uh, synthetically generating content, demanding, for example, that um, uh, synthetically generated images are somewhat marked, for example, with a, with a watermark um, and, and, and other things. And then this year, just in April, actually, they published um, interim measures on regulating generative AI. So again, chatbots, uh, chatbots um, uh, large language models, etc. And those are still, they updated um, uh, the, the, the regulation in August and they published them. They're not enforced yet because they're still uh, sending them out for comments. So yes, of course, it's a very state-led approach, but they're still like their people to be on board. And so what they normally do is that the party sends out these interim regulations and then they collect comments from the intellectual community, the, the, the research environment, the private sector as well. And so then they will update based on the kind of feedback that, that they get. But um, my, my assumption is that they will be um, um, enacted pretty, pretty soon. Um, now, um, there is a tendency, in particularly in, we in the West, to, to often dismiss these regulations as irrelevant or to see them purely through the lens of, of geopolitical competition to write the rules for AI. Um, I agree with that. But there's also an argument made by some uh, colleagues in, in, the, in, in, in the China's uh, uh, field that, um, that argue that policymakers, in particular in the EU and the US and also elsewhere, can really learn a lot um, from some of these regulations and from some of the ways uh, in which bureaucratically they have actually managed to um, to organize things and to really like this sort of fast and and and, uh, and changing and adaptive response uh, that all of these agencies have uh, have embraced that really make them learn very quickly uh, and and this is good in a field that, such as technology which which moves very fast so the argument is also that even if countries fundamentally disagree on the specific content of a regulation, they can still learn from each other, right, And when it comes to the underlying structures. And the point is the Chinese structure is, in that sense, quite good. 
Um, now, uh, on the other hand, um, it is also important to know that while these principles and guidelines, they, they bear many similarities to the ones that we read on the, in the AI Act uh, uh, from the EU and in many US documents, um, institutional, cultural, social and historical differences in Chinese political system lead, I think, to significantly different outcomes. Um, just as a quick example, the, uh, in, in all of the provisions that I mentioned just now, they ask companies to adhere to socialist values, uh, which is the kind of speech policy that would never be acceptable right, in, in, in mature liberal democracies. Um, now, you can call me out for China bashing, but, uh, but in my own work, I spend a great deal of time going through Chinese documents. And, and by that, I don't just mean official documents, but I also translated tons of op-eds and commentaries for prominent officials defense, uh, in the defense and, and the, in the civilian environments to try and really understand, okay, what do they think and how do they think ethically or not about AI developing it and, and regulating it. And um, I have to say, uh, and again, not to be pessimistic, but the emerging principles out of these several hundreds documents are standing, I think, in stark contrast to um, uh, intention with, with uh, Western principles. Uh, two examples that stand out uh, from, again, my own, my own research. Um, China continuously uh, uh, attempts to de-universalize AI ethics, uh, so this means that it undermines the uh, uh, idea of universal values to rather focus on country-specific needs and national security. So the idea for the Chinese um, elite that the Communist Party is interoperability and coexistence of different normative spheres um, rather than universal norms that could potentially pose a challenge to the regime stability of the party. The second principle that I think stands out is that China, and it relates to the first, of course, wants to retain the primacy of the party over the state and, of course, over society. Um, so this, this, you know, the approach to, uh, to regulating AI is, is therefore very different, as, as Bruno already has pointed to, um, uh, where even when accounting from uh, a, a departure from pure multi-stakeholderism, um, at least in the U.S., in China, all of these decisions are made exclusively by the party, not, not, not even the state, but by the party. And the rest of the state and the society has to either adapt or perish. Um, I wanted to, and, and I'll conclude with this, but uh, make an example, because just last week, actually, the Cyber Administration of China, which is the national internet regulator, so the super regulator that censors uh, uh, anything AI, and that it is directly, again, uh, under the authority of the Communist Party, they published the, a white paper called um, Global AI Governance Initiative, yet another one of these documents that's been coming out over the last few, um, few months and a and, and couple of years. Um, and in their own words, and I'm quoting from a Global Times article, Global Times is a state um, um, news media, uh, the paper offers uh, an open, inclusive and fair approach for the development, security and governance of emerging artificial intelligence technologies and services in stark contrast to the US's restrictions and blockade aimed at preserving its hegemony. Um, they, they've got a number of points. It's, it's a really interesting document, actually. Um, and I wanted to quote two just to give you an idea of how um, misleading <laughs> they actually are. Um, the first, and this is the second point in their list, um, they say we should respect other countries' national sovereignty and strictly abide by the laws when providing them with AI products and services. We oppose using AI tech for the purposes of intervening in other countries' internal affairs, 
social systems, etc. So this, of course, if you remember what I said earlier about the principles coming out of Chinese um, um, uh, elites, um, it, it really highlights how it, it is, you know, national sovereignty is the, the first uh, and foremost focus of, of, of China and the singularity of domestic experiences takes precedence over universal values. The second, and again I'm quoting, they say we should adhere to the principles of fairness and non-discrimination, avoid biases and discrimination based on ethnicities, uh, beliefs, nationalities and gender. This sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, except it's an outright lie, because there's been tons of research being done, both by investigative journalists and uh, lots of scholars, uh, mostly in Europe and, and some in the US, that has revealed how, for instance, facial recognition technology, which is widespread in China, has been used and intentionally skewed to pick on the faces of ethnic minorities, particularly Turkish ethnic minorities and Uyghurs in, 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 in Xinjiang. And it is widely used not only in this province, but increasingly in other provinces in China as well. So these are just two examples out of many. Uh, that are meant to just highlight how really when it comes to Chinese political discourse around regulating AI, we just can't take it at face value. We have to look at, uh, look at the broader political context um, domestically and China's positioning at the international stage. Great. Thanks for these insights. Uh, this really stands in contrast with what we have been learning about the Euro European Union approach. So I'd like to continue a bit more on this dichotomy between China and the European Union, asking you, Bruno, if you could expand on the European Union Artificial Intelligence Act, try to unpack it for us, and also, if possible, other policy documents. How is, how is that when it comes to regulations and specific pieces of regulation? Yes, uh, I'll do that. But I'll also do something that uh, it's also particularly interesting, which is the, the similarities mm. that can also be drawn from the Chinese case. One of them is this understanding of uh, as AI as an horizontal issue. Okay, so a horizontal issue that's already now, but also in the future, will have implications in all sorts of, of uh, domains uh, in society at large. Okay, so understand. So regulating artificial intelligence, it's not something that happens in a silo, but it's something that will have kind of ramifications into other things. That's obviously how the EU uh, as well. Uh, also importantly. Uh, and that's the general approach that 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 I that I have to research in, in any case, is to agree exactly with what you said, like to, that we cannot stick to what the text says, and but also try to unpack the sociopolitics besides it, behind it, and also try to anticipate and monitor the consequences of the application of those of those rules. And I think that the EU AI Act, in a sense, offers many possibilities for doing precisely this kind of, of, um, of uh, critical engagement. So, uh, Giacomo, you had mentioned in the beginning that, that, uh, that a good example of the Brussels effect is GDPR, okay? So kind of this general data, data protection regulation that really um, has created a new standard in a way that issues like privacy, data management, data sharing, etc., is dealt with not only in the EU, but then, you know, uh, uh, um, I wouldn't say globally, but in many, in many places uh, of the globe. And precisely because of this success, in 2019, uh, the President of the European Commission and the, and the German uh, Chancellor said, we need a GDPR for AI. 
basically. So this is what triggered the process that eventually led to the adoption of the first version of the draft EU AI Act in 2021. Uh, that has been uh, under discussion with uh, many stakeholders uh, participating uh, and providing inputs. Uh, um, a new, uh, you know, a new version was was kind of uh, uh, voted on on the European Parliament just a few months ago, and we are now in the last stage of fine tuning um, the, you know, the actual content of the of the act. Just a few days ago, there was a sense, you know, by the the leading member of the European Parliament working on this that. By Wednesday, 25th of October, we could have an agreement uh, on, on the final text. That didn't happen yesterday. But, you know, some people say it's really imminent. Other people say it will not happen until early next year. Anyway, that doesn't matter too much. Um, the most important thing, perhaps, you know, it's the EU AI Act is obviously very technical, uh, a bit boring to explore in this kind of setting. I think that the one thing that, that one needs to know about it is that it is basically uh, reliant on a risk-based approach. So the way that, that AI is regulated, uh, treated, understood, is on a scale of risk. So the, 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 the act introduces four levels of, of risk from unacceptable to uh, limited risk, and then different rules apply to you know, whether the new system uh, falls into any one of these three categories. Um, on on the list of um, of um, unacceptable risk are, for example, uh, facial recognition technologies that are used live. Okay, so if you are in a police operation, you cannot use um, a facial recognition system to say that person is the person. You know that we are after in this specific operation happening now, okay? That has been uh, voted out by the European Parliament, okay? Uh, other thing, uh, very importantly also to contrast with the Chinese example, is the uh, social scoring uh, technologies. Mm -hmm. So technologies that, you know, that, that create a profile of you and then that profile is used, you know, to give you a social societal score that then is the base for you know decisions on issues like you know whether or not you should get an insurance whether or not you know you are at high risk of uh, falling outside uh, or, or, or being someone that will not abide to welfare rules and therefore you should not receive welfare benefits, etc. There was a huge scandal in the Netherlands uh, just in 2019 about precisely how this type of AI led to disastrous consequences, etc. So this is, this is ruled out in the, in the draft acts. Um, then there is the high-risk category, and this is where things get a little bit uh, uh, more exciting, more tricky, because it's a huge list of, of AI systems that, uh, that fall under this risk, and it's, it's possible to debate you know, why these systems are there, uh, and others not, and why these are in this category and not other categories, but also deconstruct what happens if you if your system is put on on uh, on this level. Okay, so kind of the the kind of 
the kind of uh, mechanisms that exist to, to, to assess them, who participates, etc. Yeah, yeah, so I think that regarding the EU AI Act, this, this, is what, this is what I will say. I'm happy to talk more about that. So how can we deconstruct this a little bit? One, one particular issue is that most debates about responsible artificial intelligence rely on the concept of uh, trustworthiness. You know? Can we trust the system? Uh, but of course, whether or not you can trust the system is something that is widely open for debate, not only because you know, at, at the more granular level, uh, there are many things that you know, make you able to trust something or not, or make something trustworthy. This is also subjective, but also at the more philosophical level, you know, like can you, know, uh, can you really trust a non-human you know, counterpart? Okay, that that is something for for Greg <laughs> to answer, not me. But this this is a, this is a, an ethical philosophical question that comes up um, uh, quite often, and this has led to some criticism of how in the EU AI Act trustworthiness is equated with uh, with risk acceptability. And there is people, you know, Sandra Wachter, for example, from Oxford, has done excellent work on this. She says that this is a fundamentally flawed. Uh, uh, equivalence. And other things can, can also be brought up. Sorry, F just one thing more. Uh, very importantly is who, and this is something that we can you know, debate further on, is understanding um, the idea that yes, we can talk about an EU approach to regulating AI, a Chinese approach, etc. But it's important to, in the case of the, well, in general, but in the case of the EU in particular, to deconstruct the idea of the EU as a unitary actor. Okay, so we have the European Commission driving the process in a particular way, and then you, you know, and then enters the European Parliament, you know, uh, with a lot of challenges, a lot of criticism, thinking fundamentally different ways, for example, and then you have, you know, the member states that, for example, in some member states have really different notions of privacy. For example, in Germany, you know, for historical reasons, very strict understanding of, pri of, of how unacceptable invasions of privacy are. Other countries are, are, are more, um, you know, relaxed about that. But, and, and finally, the role of, of other institutions, for example, uh, the Court of Justice, but also the Ombudsman, the Fundamental Rights Agency, etc. So it's important also to understand that the EU is not really a unitary actor when it comes to this. Thank you very much for all these nuances. Uh, after this uh, engaging conversation on national approaches, I think we can try to level up the discussion to the international level. And uh, I would like to ask you, Nick, uh, based on what has been discussed now as well, then what are the real challenges when it comes to the regulation of artificial intelligence at the international level? Um, yeah, uh, thanks, Giacomo. Um, obviously, uh, this is a huge subject, um, and I've got about five minutes, um, so I, I can't cover everything. Um, but uh, if we're looking at sort of attempts at international controls at the UN or perhaps outside the UN, uh, on again, you know, AI in military or security applications, um, uh, the the sort of general uh, touchstone in arms control is trust but verify. 
um, that states can get together. They need to trust each other to a certain extent to be able to have um, a, a negotiation process to be able to, to reach an agreement. But verification is absolutely essential. Um, you, you need to be able to know that the other parties aren't cheating. Um, and if you can't check that, then... Um, it's very difficult to trust them. Um, and in terms of uh, the, the trusting and verification side with artificial intelligence applications for, for military or security uses, uh, th there's two problems. Um, and these are laid at the, you know, at the heart of the negotiations um, and it you know, is one reason why we haven't seen a lot of success um, you know, over the last decade. Um, uh, the first is the definitions. Um, exactly what are you trying to control? Um, uh, and the problem here is that the definitions we have are functional. Um, uh, they're, you know, what the technology does. Um, whereas usually with an arms control, you very rapidly move from that to what it is. Um, for example, um, with the Chemical Weapons Convention, you, you've got a huge telephone book-sized list of chemicals which are prohibited. Um, uh, for, for artificial intelligence, we don't have anything like that, and it would be impossible, really, to produce something because then you're having to go down to the level of, okay, how is the code written? And, of course, that code um, can be changed at any point. It, you know, it, it's... it's um, completely different. So we have these functional definitions, and then there's no real agreement amongst governments as to, okay, where do we draw the line? Um, if we talk about machines taking over um, human decisions, uh, we've had that in various aspects for decades um, uh, with various technologies. Um, so then uh, on the... On the other extreme, some of the countries um, involved in negotiations have put the, the level of uh, machine intelligence uh, at sort of way beyond what we have now in sort of scientific, uh, sorry, science fiction um, in terms of a machine being able to fully replicate all of human um, decision-making, which is, which is a very long way. Um, so we don't have an agreement on the definition and we're not able to define exactly what it is. Um, second, in terms of verification, um, it's extremely difficult to have the kind of monitoring and inspection regimes that we have with other kinds of weapons. Um, so with chemical weapons, with uh, nuclear weapons, you can have, say, the International Atomic Energy Association um, actually going to countries, the IAE does inspections of facilities and it can you know, come to a, a judgment as to whether a country is actually trying to develop a nuclear weapon. Um, with, with AI, that's not practically uh, possible. Um, firstly, because uh, if we're talking about software and trying to regulate software, software can be written by pretty much anywhere. You, you don't have a big <laughs> identifiable software production laboratory. Um, uh, secondly, um, it's extremely difficult to actually, e even if you can get hold of the code, it's very difficult for an external party to, to uh, quickly verify exactly what is this code doing. And of, of course, um, uh, anyone can update the code uh, pretty much instantaneously, um, you, you know, with a with an internet connection, etc. So, even if you verified on Monday that no, this isn't AI, you get an update on Tuesday. So, 
the, the verification aspects um, are, are extremely, uh, extremely challenging. Um, it's still possible to have an agreement, um, uh, to, to have a treaty. Um, you have similar verification problems, for example, with biological weapons. Again, how do you actually look into every single lab in the world? Um, but then the treaty is more um, of a normative um, guide. It's saying an agreement that this kind of thing shouldn't happen, but what you, what you wouldn't be able to have is uh, you know, inspection and monitoring teams going around the world. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Bruno, I'd like to go back to you. And you mentioned this already, but there is ongoing discussions about the European Union and the so-called Brussels effect when it comes to regulation and the setting the international standards according to European standards. I'd like to I'd like to ask you if you could speculate a bit on whether this will happen with or is happening <laughs> when it comes to artificial intelligence. What's your take on this? Yeah, I think that for for really trying to unpack this idea of Brussels effect, it's important to understand that this Brussels effect can be manifested in, in, in two types of ways. So, And this can be called uh, Brussels effect de jure and de facto. De facto is when uh, uh, a technology developer outside the EU uh, adapts... Uh, or adopts EU standards when designing the next product, okay? So it's having a real de facto influence on how a particular uh, technology is, is being developed. The jure means when uh, an official entity formally adopts a standard that is equivalent to the, to the EU standard. Uh, I think... Um, also from, from other work that other colleagues have, have, have been doing, uh, it is expected that the uh, EU AI Act will have both the URI and de facto effects outside the territory of the, of the EU. The, the main reason for that is, you know, is the reputation that the EU have uh, acquired over the years, the precedent set by the, the, the GDPR, and also, you know, those more tangible factors that I mentioned in the beginning, including the fact that the EU being a market of 500 million people, that's, you know, that is very developed and, and tech-savvy and economically um, uh, developed, you know, on, on average. And so most technology developers, you know, cannot afford or are really not interested in, in, in completely leaving behind that market. Of course, there is some, some limitations to this. I think that's key to understanding how far the Brussels effect on the, when it comes to AI uh, will be to understand how developments in China, for example, uh, will happen, okay, and, and, and how, how, how much of a, of a standard setting that the Chinese uh, rules will also have, so that is also something um, highly, highly relevant and highly likely. In fact, the uh, Chinese data privacy law is partly modeled upon the GDPR. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, uh, importantly, a, a question regarding regarding the Brussels effect and kind of a, and more generally about regulation. Uh, it's it's a, it's a question that is difficult to answer, uh, but but it's important to raise, which is. 
does regulation uh, harm innovation? Mm. Kind of, if, if you put a lot of regulatory burden uh, in, in the process of developing new technology, is this something that's, that prevents innovation? Uh, it's difficult to answer this question. Um, there is, uh, you know, uh, important uh, data coming out of the fact that, you know, out of the, you know, top 20, top 50, whatever number, you know, ranking you want to have uh, um, most important uh, tech companies in the world, extremely few are actually based in Europe, okay? Mm-hmm. So this is relevant. This, this cannot be ignored. Uh, but there is also... Uh, uh, other factors that that play into this, namely the fact that that uh, you know that the EU is a very peculiar polity, when, you know, with, where regulation is multi-level, happens both, you know, uh, at, at state level, EU level. Um, so we, I think it's more complicated than that. I would really wouldn't want to fall on that, you know, saying like you really need to relax on. Regulation so that innovation can happen. I, that's not how how I see it. Um, there are uh, two other, th- two three other small things that I want to bring when it comes to kind of to to this issue of 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 how uh, we are in the moment of global regulatory interdependence. So it's not just you know effect coming from Brussels, this effect coming from Washington, from Silicon Valley, from, from Beijing, you know, from Lagos, from Rio de Janeiro, from many places, okay? This, this is really important to, to understand. Uh, but it's also important to understand who participates, okay? Like, who are the ones that, that shape the debate, that shape the, you know, how technology is regulated, how te- technology is developed. I think that if we look into, for example, the issues of, of biases, you know, the inherent bias of, you know, AI, or lar- you know, large language models and, and, or, or other AI applications, it has really been, you know, black women uh, doing research that have driving, uh, you know, putting these issues on the agenda. You know, without their, their work, uh, a lot of the biases would have gone unnoticed. So it's really important to understand, you know, also the political sociology of, you know, the software development, the software application, etc. So it's really important that we kind of widen up the ones that participate in the debates and actually have a stake on them. Final thing that I would like to, to highlight that I think that very often stays outside the room when we, when we debate challenges and opportunities of AI is the enormous environmental impacts. And I'm sorry to bring this up, but it's crucial. You know, like yesterday at, uh, at, the, at the panel, the first panel of these pre-AI days, uh, one of the speakers was, was talking of how much energy yeah. is necessary for a particular uh, model that, that they kind of were analyzing to run. Okay, uh, a lot of people talk about uh, the digital transition as being something that is, uh, you know, environmentally friendly. That is part of of, of a, a green uh, agenda. But this is really not so straightforward. And the amount of energy, the amount of of water, for example, that it's necessary to cool down, you know, this enormous data centers is really something that needs to be on the table. So uh, more AI, more digital, more computers, uh, it also has an environmental uh, footprint by itself. So it's not just saying that, you know, you replace this, then 
You know, of course, if you re if you replace, uh, you know, uh, a car that's you know drives on diesel and the, and the other one that drives on a battery, you know, in the big picture, you you stop having you know those C CO two emissions. But it is important to understand what is necessary to produce the the battery that makes that car go. Okay. And 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 where are these minerals, etc.? So this is this is a wider discussion, and we cannot really neglect the environmental dimension as well. Thank you very much for bringing this up. On the things that we should discuss more, I'd like to bring up uh, the fact that we often don't talk enough about global South perspectives when it comes to develop to development of digital technologies. It is often a one-way discussion on which approach will be implemented in Global South countries. Now, I'd like to ask Nick, mainly because I know that you've been in uh, many fieldworks, mainly because I was there with you in Southeast Asia, and uh, we've learned a lot of things on how developing countries are approaching the development of digital technologies, including artificial intelligence. So I'd like you to share some insights on that, if you may. Yeah, yeah, certainly, uh, Giacomo. I mean, I'll, I'll stick to the, the sort of international global attempts at regulation, um, uh, again, to avoid uh, talking for too long. Um, uh, I, I mean, there's two aspects uh, which I think are important. Um, firstly, when we're talking about sort of attempts at global regulation or regional regulation, uh, and as, you know, example from Ilaria and Bruno, we're talking about China, the US, uh, European Union. Um, to a large extent, uh, countries from outside those three, are, are th their presence in the negotiations is, is pretty limited. Um, uh, that applies both to civil society organizations, uh, it applies to, to governments. Um, uh, and this is not because they don't care about the issues. Uh, I would say it's largely due to a lack of capacity. Um, in, in a very practical sense, if you're going to go to New York, for example, for, for a month uh, to participate uh, at the UN, this is extremely expensive. Um, uh, if you're a civil society organization from an African state, for example, you, you simply can't, can't do that. Um, uh, likewise, if you're uh, uh, in foreign ministry in a developing country, uh, again, you, you can't afford to send somebody there. Um, they have people based in, in, uh, around the UN, of course, but then those people probably have uh, you know, a very large number of issues on their portfolio. Um, uh, and underlying that, uh, again, is the sort of human capacity needed to participate in the debates. Um, it, you, th they can get very technical. Um, you need people who've been able to follow the discussions, who have uh, education. Um, and again, developing that human capacity is extremely expensive um, uh, and you know, to a large extent hasn't happened. So when we're talking about these global debates, these are very much debates, uh, as we've been saying, um, amongst uh, North Americans, Europeans, uh, China, and, uh, and a few others. Um, secondly, uh, if we're looking, uh, again, going back to the issue of controls, in particular of a trade in the technology, uh, I mean, of course, uh, conflict, human rights play a role in, in those uh, trade controls, but also there are national um, strategic uh, considerations as well. So if we're looking at, okay, who, um, 
who would be allowed to export, who is a, uh, a permitted importer um, of this kind of technology from the US, from China, from Europe, um, the effect is going to be that governments in the global south will find it much harder to get hold of the technology um, than they would be uh, if they're in the north. Um, and this is going to have uh, you know, implications for you know, overall global inequality and the, the extent to which governments in the global south can actually catch up uh, or not. Thank you very much. Uh, sticking to a global south perspective and going back also to, to the Chinese approach, we know that China is investing uh, or Chinese companies are investing heavily in uh, certain countries, particularly again Southeast Asia but not only, uh, in the context of the so-called digital Silk Road. So I'd like to ask you, Ilaria, if you could go back to China by bringing up the international dimension of China's or Chinese foreign policy. And also, um, I was just reading now uh, a piece, again, from Anu Bradford, in which she says, any global approach to artificial intelligence governance that ex excludes China is likely to have only a limited impact. But China's presence would inevitably change the agenda. I'd like to challenge you on, or give you the floor for <coughs> discussing this. All right, I'll do my best in five minutes. Uh, okay, so first, going back to what Nick was just saying and, and your question on the Global South. So there's been a rich debate um, in, in, in IR, political science scholarship, uh, as to whether China's economic uh, and uh, uh, influence and strong trade and political ties with uh, most countries in the Global South, really, and its export of digital technologies to many of these uh, might lead to their adopting uh, Chinese liberal norms, in this case and context, of course, around the use of, of AI-driven uh, techs. Um, and in particular, initiatives such as the Digital Silk Road, which is the kind of digital technology arm of the Belt and Road Initiative, um, have come under great scrutiny uh, also among policymakers in recipient countries, to be fair, not just scholars like myself, um, uh, for, for exactly this, uh, uh, among other reasons. Um, and and uh, so if you were to say, so the typical question in this debate is whether China is exporting digital authoritarianism, right? Um, my answer would be yes and no. <laughs> in the sense that um, uh, China is making both very direct and very indirect attempts at influencing behavior in smaller and weaker states, right? So uh, it may Chinese leaders may not say explicitly that they want a more liberal order. That would be you know, discursively counterproductive. But, but everything they do <laughs> points to the opposite. Uh, and so uncouple that with its enormous attempts at uh, spreading influence and power throughout different uh, uh, sectors and, 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 and branches in, in the developing world, and its success stories at doing so, um, will have, I think, consequences in terms of, of, of who abides by whose rules, right? Um, and I think that, going back to the second part of your question, then, when it comes to China, you know, sort of dragging other countries when, when they're at the table, I think that a lot of these places, particularly in Southeast Asia, Africa, increasingly Latin America, and importantly the Middle East, are going to go with what China is proposing. There's several reasons for that, and I don't have time to go into it, but um, we, can, we can do it in the, in, during the Q&A. And then finally, going back to a scenario, perhaps. Um, if I'm thinking you know, whether it is possible to find an agreement uh, on some norms and standards for safe development of, of AI globally that also engages China in somewhat active way, 
I think the biggest challenge, I'm glad, Nick, you mentioned trust because I think the problem is that right now the U.S. and China are plunged into the worst crisis of trust uh, in decades, definitely since 1989 and even from the 60s, really. And so I think that, that reconciling liberal democratic perspectives with Chinese efforts to ensure that universal norms are undermined um, and do not encroach on the uh, monopoly of the regime, I think it, it just makes it really difficult to have a conversation on this now. I'm not saying we shouldn't have it, but 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 again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, just this, this by default, the Chinese view the world as separate coexisting normative spheres. So they don't have a problem <laughs> if we in Europe want to do things in a certain way, as long as they can keep doing their own thing. And so I think as a starting point, that's not great, right? Um, and so... Um, and so this links back to what I mentioned a little about, you know, Chinese regulations on paper looking very similar and sounding very similar. Um, but then once you uh, dissect them, they really reflect the ideological orientation of the party, which is, again, not promising in terms of transparency and intent, just to mention too. And so if we ask, you know, is there a convergence? <coughs> I see the, U, the EU and the US, despite differences, somewhat converging towards... Uh, um, uh, a shared framework for ethical uses of AI. Again, even accounting for, for, for differences. And on the other hand, China has really attempted to, um, um, to undermine this, I would say. Of course, not as much as Russia, but, but still. Uh, I don't think we should, um, we should let their sort of um, uh, um, projecting image of, as a responsible power fool us, in a sense. At the same time... Um, uh, a more positive note, perhaps, if I may end on that, uh, uh, is that um, uh, there's been cautious opening from the part of, of, of certain Chinese intellectuals in particular um, uh, to, to, um, to having these debates and to keep talking with the U.S., uh, and, and I think that's good. Um, uh, so I guess we'll just... Um, we shouldn't regard their, their willingness to engage with the international community as entirely insincere. Thanks. On this positive note, I think it's about time for us to open the floor for Q&A because we could go on for a, another three hours, I'm sure. Uh, please make sure to uh, state your name before uh, your question. And I think someone will be circulating a microphone. I see some hands already. We can start maybe from the gentleman here in the first row. Yes, uh, thank you for the interesting discussion. Uh, my name is Paul Trost, non-affiliated. Um, I would like to ask you, just this morning, I uh, saw a little thing on LinkedIn um, ahead of the UK AI uh, Safety Summit. Um, YouGov did a poll where about 75% of the respondents um, replied that they had serious concerns which they think should be addressed in this summit about uh, self-improving AI and AI superseding human intelligence. Um, and I was wondering to what extent you see these concerns reflected in the regulatory frameworks that you discussed, um, both on the international level, but also in China and the EU. Thank you. Do you want to collect a couple or do you want us to? Thanks to, to all of you for, for very interesting and important perspectives. I have a, uh, one question for uh, Ilaria, one for Bruno. Um, I wanted to push you a little bit more on, on, uh, on China's uh, position, uh, Ilaria, and, and specifically 
on whether or not you see, uh, you know, any voices, any discussion at all that mirrors sort of the ethical discussion uh, in the West about military applications uh, of AI? I mean, is there is there just a complete shut off, or is there any sort of reflection on these same issues? And and you know, in the extension of that, uh, also you know, militarization of of, uh, of sort of we, we had this discussion in the in the in the previous panel about these domains that are sort of uh, extending beyond the national uh, the state. Borders, uh, specifically with with space and with uh, with international seas, and then for Bruno, um, I, I think your your point about the EU not being a unitary actor is a very important one, and uh, unfortunately, increasingly uh, relevant and important one. Um, the question is is whether you see this as, as something that is. I mean, I, I'm not familiar with with exactly where these discussions are headed in the within the EU, but could you say something about sort of the level of controversy or, or polarization around these issues because it's fundamental to 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 whether or not uh, the EU is going to be sort of an efficient regulator in this issue uh, going forward thank you I can start with it with the first one um, yeah uh, I, I, I think that's a very good point um, and I uh, certainly looking at the sort of international discussions um, I think they're driven by a deep-seated and very widespread uh, I think concern maybe is the too, too sophisticated word, but you know, just it, it's it it feels wrong uh, to a lot of people. Um, and if 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 you're looking at okay, why do some issues become important? Why why do they get prominence? And you, you know, there, there's thousands of other problems in the world which don't get the same prominence. Uh, I, I think that this deep-seated concern li lies at the heart of it. Um, uh, the, the problem, uh, as I was saying, is it's, it's then um, very difficult to get from a sort of, you know, almost global feeling that, yeah, this is a bit creepy and we don't want it, to actually defining, um, okay, this is the limit, this is how far we want to go, this is what needs to be regulated, this, what, uh, this is what needs to be prohibited. Shall I continue? No. Um, yeah, I agree with Nick. On the UK summit, actually, I don't know if you saw the sort of um, backdoor discussions that, you know, initially China wasn't supposed to be invited and a lot of liberal countries, uh, um, they, they uh, lobbied the UK for not inviting it and then they decided to do it, but only as a, uh, not as an active participant. So they're just auditing, basically. Um, uh, we can talk about whether that decision was a good one or not. But <laughs> um, uh, I think Henrik's question is, touches on something really important. Um, uh, and, and I think there is often the perhaps the tendency to think uh, the Chinese people do not, or officials and elite, do not think about AI ethically. Uh, that is not the case. Um, so one point for reassuring, uh, they do. Uh, and again, what I mentioned earlier actually about uh, me going through like hundreds of documents, it was actually mostly about military AI. Uh, I should have said that. Um, and particularly autonomous weapon systems. So... Um, so then the problem as you as you as you uh, as we discussed is not so much that they don't talk about it uh, they're very worried actually about the potential consequences of deploying autonomous weapon systems um uh, the potential consequences for civilians these are all topics that are like i can assure you very widely debated in the defense community but um, but again the the political nature of 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 these uh, discourses makes the outcome a little bit different because then Yes, they're concerned about civilian casualties, but, but mostly they're concerned about losing control 
uh, over machines. So the, the, the you know the, the kind of obsession with with the ontological insecurity, I should say, of the party is not so much uh, these days, or not only about control over the people, but also potentially losing control over these weapons, right? And so I think that 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 really being able to interpret and, and nuance those uh, will will perhaps help us finding ways of addressing ethics of AI that depart from the uh, point that we disagree on these issues, but you know, where can we take the discussion further when it comes to the common interest? Nobody, I believe, even the Chinese wish to see. Uh, I mean, mutually assured destruction is, is still, you know, it's still a thing, even even for those who have said that they're not stopping themselves from trying to develop uh, autonomous weapon systems. But I think there's yeah, there's some hope there. <laughs> Yeah, okay. First question, people are concerned. Uh, does this, you know, make it into into the into the documents? Uh, well, there's so much that can be said about this. Uh, first, um, for example, uh, if we want to kind of zoom in on the EU AI Act, uh, it is doubtful that the those categories of risk reflect what the general person would feel. Okay, um, uh, there is some debate about you know how these categories came about and 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 how those things were you know how particular technologies uses of the technologies etc were ascribed to to specific uh, levels of risk. Uh, I, I I personally uh, believe on a number of things. First, I think that there is so in in general I think that. Uh, the the EU AI Act is a is a step in the right direction. I think that if the general public knew about current and potential uses of AI, uh, they would find the EU AI AI Act insufficient. Mm. So that that's my understanding of it as well. Um, and this is this relates very much with this nature of this concern that you are talking about. Because we also, the truth is, we, you know, over the last six, nine months, we've seen absolutely extraordinary statements by key developers of AI technology, you know, leading figures in the AI world saying, this is very dangerous, you know, we should stop research for a while, um, you know, people quitting their jobs because they say, oh, oh, I suddenly realized, you know, after 40 years of working on this, I realized that this can be a little bit problematic. So this this exists. But at the same time, most of, of this hype over the last, you know, less than a year has to do with the consequences in the long run. And I think that there is a very clear uh, timeline here that most people are not aware of. And I think that a lot of the focus, and if I want to be, if, if I am allowed to be cynical about all these concerns of these people, is that by putting the of the discussion in the most extreme scenarios, yeah. uh, you shift the discussion away from what is happening already today. Yeah. And today there is a lot of damage that is being done, uh, and the potential for increasing uh, levels of damage to happen as well is really there. But most people don't talk about it because we are talking about, you know, mutually assured discussion, uh, destruction. So I think I think this is this is very important. Uh, and uh, for example, in the case of the EU, again, we at some of us here at Prio, we have we have participated in some of these regulatory processes when it comes to the regulation of of new technologies at the EU level. 
we are herds, but at the end of the day, uh, who speaks authorita authoritative uh, with authority on these issues? Like whose voices are really heard and whose voices, you know, make it into the content of the legislation? Then that's it's something else. Okay. Um, regarding the 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 level of polarization at, at the EU level, um, a very important question. I think that we have basically uh, one main actor, which is the European Commission, and you know, in the in the general. Uh, political institutional architecture of the EU. The European Commission is almost like the government of the EU that has different ministries. These ministries are called DGs, Directorate Generals. A number of DGs from the Commission have been working on this. It is the Commission that, that drives this process. And that comes up with, you know, with the first drafts of, of, of the documents, um, but in in the in the in the in the legislative process that is followed in this particular case, the European Parliament has a very important role as well. And here in the European Parliament, you know that in the in the policy system of the of the EU corresponds to the function of you know a national parliament in 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 a country in a, in a, a nation. Um, here we have kind of a lot of discussions and we, we have a lot of pushback uh, to some of the things that the Commission wants to do. Of course, this discussion uh, happens, you know, within the political spectrum and you have, you know, most contestation coming from, you know, in, in the case of the EU, from the parties that are on kind of on, on, on the left and the, and the Green Party's co coalition in a sense. So that's where most of the pushback happens. Um, we also have some tension between what the Commission wants to do and what some member states want to do. Um, and I've mentioned, for example, how, how some specific member states would actually be very interested in, in allowing this live usage of facial recognition technologies, for example. Uh, but in this case, the Parliament didn't, didn't allow either. So, uh, so I would say these are the main sources of, of, of tension. Uh, I would also say that uh, in, in, the, in the EU legal system, we have a precedent system. That means that any decision from, from the Court of Justice uh, will create precedent and it will become law. So when these things started to, to, to be challenged at the, at the Court of Justice of the EU, you know, they, they might go in, on, on a different direction. To the, to the very specific question, will this undermine the potential impacts uh, of, of the, the regulation externally? I don't think so. I think that you know, once these things, uh, you know, once the EU makes it through uh, these uh, difficult discussions, then you know, then it the standard is there, and I think that the, the potential for for dissemination is uh, uh, will not be harmed by these discussions. So, this would be my my answer. Sorry, could I just a quick follow up because I'm just reading a book from Mustafa Suleiman, the, the founder of AI company DeepMind. He then sold it to Google and moved on to something else. But uh, uh, he's making exactly this point, among other things that he says, really interesting. Um, but but precisely the kind of almost lack or or numbness to this argument that actually, well, instead of looking, you know, 50 years ahead, perhaps we should look at what is happening now. So I just wanted to flag that. <laughs> 
Okay, we're ready for other questions. I see two hands there. Okay, I'm good. Okay, so I have two questions: one on the representation question, and then a couple follow-up questions on the Chinese case. Um, so, in terms of global south uh, in developing countries, um, and to the extent that m there's much overlap there, um, getting access to these debates and costs being a barrier, is it not feasible to come up with some solution in which costs are shared? I mean, clearly Gabon might not be able to afford a large delegation, but the African Union might be able to pull costs and have it a billion or more than a billion people represented in sort of these debates collectively? Would it be possible, particularly, I know that you said you worked on the Southeast Asian case for something like ASEAN to do that, um, and for more voices to be heard? I mean, in effect, this is what the European Union does, right? Is it, It's not like, I don't know, Croatia has a full delegation that does this. The European Union is in some way representing itself globally as a collection of member states. Is something like this not possible? Are costs actually not the barrier in its invitation? Is it market power? Is there something else? I'm just curious if the international organizations representing global South countries that we currently have are for some reason unable to, to fulfill this role, and if so, why that is. Um, and my questions on China is, so you, you've mentioned a lot about how Chinese AI policy um, really is, I guess, entirely unsurprisingly, at least about replicating the political system just like it is in Europe. Um, but since I believe it was Jiang Zemin, please correct me if I'm wrong, sort of when they allowed entrepreneurs into the party, the Chinese Communist Party is now 90 million people representing, not representative of Chinese society, but there aren't large groups of people for whom no one is in, is in the party. And politics largely, in my understanding, happen within the party. And so I'm curious, can you tell me sort of like, who's behind this? Is it is it, you know, entrepreneurs on, in sort of coastal cities who want government contracts? Is it the PLA who really is looking to sort of close a technological gap? Like, who is pushing AI um, or specific AI governance plans? Who is contesting them? What do we know about this? And maybe what don't we know about this? Um, and then finally, in the, co the comparison to the EU and on regulation, it seems to me we've talked a lot about different political systems, but one of the key outcomes here is that the Chinese government is actually doing a lot to make AI happen in ways that the Europeans appear to be doing less to do, in the sense that there's a lot of money going to AI investment in China, and there's less so going in, in Europe. And so I'm curious if you think there is a lot of way to learn about regulation from or about regulating AI um, in China and Europe if, in fact, the Europeans aren't doing most of the AI policy that the Chinese are doing. Um, so that's that's my question. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'll just keep it short. Uh, thank you for interesting presentations. And uh, my question is regarding this um, s sort of imperialistic character of laws when we talk about EU law, especially with Brussels effect and everything. And when we talk about having a global action on AI, we, as you guys also pointed out, though, when we say global action, we mean EU, US, China, and no one else. So are we, should we think about a future where, you know, this unity and diversity kind of thing, people, or, or sorry, states doing their things by themselves, you know, because every state has their own values and everything. And as you said, you know, Europe cannot be generalized as a unitary thing. Similarly, Global South can also not be, even Africa has diversity. So I'm just thinking in terms of uh, practically, you know, for, for the good of, you know, different countries and everything, is it worthwhile to go for global action or is, is it is it challenging or, I mean, is it going to do any good? Just to put it that way. Thanks. I just wanted to follow up on that because uh, I'm interested in, uh, um, actually, I think that uh, um, 
that uh, China's, uh, I'm not sure why China's approach of diversifying or not being un not having a universal standard is very different from <laughs> what was just said here. Um, <clears throat> and I'm wondering about Hong Kong because, you know, Hong Kong is under Hong Kong basic law and um, wouldn't it be good to have that opening for diversity of systems in the one country, two systems? And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that as a kind of a, I mean, there could be more than just not wanting to have a universal norms from the Chinese side. All right, first, um, Sydney, yeah. Uh, yeah, the political economy of arms control um, is a fascinating subject. Um, <laughs> In, in other processes, um, yeah, you have seen uh, sort of large donations by governments, including Norway, to provide at least travel funds um, for people from Global South to attend negotiations. Um, that kind of money uh, has been drying up. Um, uh, and, yeah, in, in theory, um, you know, ASEAN, African Union, um, Mercosur, for, for example, in South America, could step in, um, but as far as I know, it hasn't. Um, and so basically the, the sort of funding for a lot of these arms control processes comes down to a, you know, a handful of governments, uh, Europe, Europe, Canada, etc. Um, so, uh, yeah. Then, Samar, um, the, uh, there's, there's an imperialistic character, certainly. Um, uh, uh, I guess for the rest of the world, um, at least it's an open process and you can see what's going on and the, you know, it's not going on behind you know, so much. Well, there is stuff behind the scenes, obviously, but, you know, at least it's an open process. Um, at least if you manage to get the uh, the funds, you can attend. Um, the alternative is a completely closed process. I mean, there will be deals, there will be agreements. Um, so I... I I don't think uh, a sort of disengagement would actually be better. Uh, I think you just, you know, even less idea of what's going on. Yeah, I don't think I can answer all these questions in three minutes, but I'll, I'll do my best. Okay, um, who's pushing for AI? Definitely the party. But I mean, it's the narrative that they give is that it benefits everybody right it's a little bit like when they push chinese companies to be a, uh, you know to to go out and, and and do business abroad um and and then the companies do that and and in exchange you know they have a party cell operating within their headquarters that more or less tells them what to do sometimes on some issues and and that's a mutually accepted thing because it benefits both right it benefits the state it benefits the private company the economy etc and it's uh, i feel like the same is going on with ai so clearly there is a um, a policy direction that the, the party is now convinced that AI and technology in general is really the future and is driving the future of the Chinese economy and society. And then uh, entrepreneurs uh, on, on the East, and as you pointed out rightly, on the coastal areas have embraced that uh, because it also is profitable for them to do so. The PLA has embraced that because they see that um, you know, by, by modernizing the army and by utilizing, uh, uh, exploiting the, the potential advantages of, of, of autonomy in, in certain weapon systems, they can really hopefully attempt to catch up to, to, to the U.S. Um, when it comes to the the whole learning, um, uh, I think um, something going back to what Bruno said earlier about the I agree that about the horizontal approach, but actually what the argument is 
that we can learn from Chinese, the Chinese way of regulating AI is actually about their vertical um, approach to issues, meaning that instead of having tried to uh, put out a regulation that encompasses all kinds of AI systems everywhere, all at once, they, they're going for specific things. So, you know, deep synthesis, algorithms, uh, recommendations, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so they're targeting specific issues in a, in a, in a kind of much more in-depth way. So that was, for example, something that I think could be could be valuable uh, or for 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 us to learn from. Um, I think I I I respectfully disagree with you, Osil. I think there's a there's a whole sea of difference between the universal or the idea of the universality of certain values and norms and the Chinese approach to that. And I think, in fact, Hong Kong is a good example of that because everything the party has done since the national security law came into effect is to bring it in more into the fold. Of, of mainland China, um, but um, yeah. And uh, do I have time? A quick final point, actually, on your first question to to Nick initially, that um, uh, what can smaller countries do? I think uh, ASEAN is a good example, actually, because they. Uh, I'm not saying necessarily that they're very effective, but they have been, particularly under the Singaporean leadership, they really act or they strive to act as a collective that can speak on behalf of the Southeast Asian countries, and I think that they've. They've, they've done really well. They've come up with their own AI plans. So that's another good example, for instance, on how coalitions of states could maybe play a bigger role. Yes, and, and uh, uh, I agree. There are uh, avenues to, to address this issue of representation. Uh, this is, this is uh, one of them. Uh, and I think that connecting that, the, the answer to your question to connecting to, to Samar's question as well, uh, I think that uh, we can certainly think in kind of in imperialist terms. You know, there's people that say, oh, no, this, this Brussels effect uh, should not be considered like that because people adhere, adhere to, to, uh, to EU standards voluntarily, you know, like this is not imposed. Uh, so kind of this would be like a passive uh, way of, of, of understanding it. But, of course... My perspective is that it, this is obviously this effect is desired. You know, this is not something that, you know, that happens just like that. This is this is a specific policy. You know, like we create the standards in order to get, you know, competitive advantages in the market in the future. Obviously, to me, it's quite it's quite obvious actually. Uh, the the way of dealing with it is is through multilateralism. I think that, um, you know, this. Uh, these original ideas that you know that the, that the internet should be self-governed and we kind of we should kind of uh, basically not interfere with it. This is this is something that would never got traction, uh, you know, from a Brussels perspective. This is really not how uh, you know the EU institutions look at look at this issue, and I think that you know even more so in the case of of AI, uh, but indeed. Uh, I think that my my you know to try to end on on a positive note I I look at the EU AI Act as as something as like a positive step as as a good step in the right direction um, that will probably have some cascading effects on kind of on on you know lifting up the way that uh, AI will be regulated uh, around the world and we should ideally you know bring more people more states more voices uh, to the table in order to really make this a, a multilateral issue
That's the best I can say. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, before wrapping up, I just want to thank three of you personally because it's always a great pleasure to talk with you and discuss with you about uh, these topics. On a positive note, and talking about avenues, uh, this is certainly not the last time things around digital technologies will be happening at PRIO, not least as part of the Security and Technology Research Group. So thanks for coming today, and we uh, look forward to see you soon again. Thank you. <laughs>